Hey everybody, Michael Davis here. Welcome to Bone to Pick. Uh, super excited today to have uh, one of the one of the finest bass players anywhere in the world. Uh, he, for the last four decades, has been absolutely one of the top call uh, bass players here in New York. The great David Fink. Uh, David's uh, recording, touring, and performance credits uh, read like a who's who of the entire music world. They include Dizzy Gillespie, Aretha Franklin, Sinead O'Connor, George Michael, Natalie Cole, Rod Stewart, Herbie Hancock, Yvonne Linz, Al Jarreau, Tony Bennett, uh, Paquito de Rivera, Rosemary Clooney, Andre Previn, Elton John, and uh, not to name drop, but the most uh, one that jumps out, the Hippone Big Band. He's the bass player for my band. Uh, and he's played with everybody. Uh, he hails from Philadelphia. He's a graduate of the... Uh, famous Cheltenham High School, uh, went to the Eastman School of Music, uh, cut his teeth early on with the Woody Herman Band. Um, in recent years, he's uh, turned to uh, work as a solo artist. Uh, he has just released Basic Instinct, which we will talk about uh, at great length, his fourth CD as a solo artist. Also working a lot as a composer and arranger and producer. Um, and uh, his this Basic Instinct is already getting uh, critical uh, acclaim and uh, doing quite well at jazz radio. And uh, I have to say, I've been a fan of this gentleman for, for so many years now. And uh, the first time I heard him, I was uh, an, uh, as green as green could be, 18-year-old trombone player. And I got off the plane in Rochester, New York, to go to the Eastman School of Music. And the first night I was in town, everybody said, hey, we got to go down to this place, JP's, and hear this, this trio. It's unbelievable. So I walk in, and I immediately recognize the piano player, because I was a Buddy Rich band fan, and it was Barry Kiner playing, the late, great Barry Kiner playing piano. And alongside him were this killing rhythm section of David Fink and David Radicek, who was sadly no longer with us, but uh, um, became an instant fan of this gentleman and uh, still am to this day. So, David, thanks so much for uh, coming over today and uh, sitting down and talking to us about the new project and your amazing career. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to, great to see you, as always. Um, let's talk about the early years, your early memories. Uh, I was surprised to see that you were born in Rochester, um, but you grew up in Philadelphia, and uh, I know you came from a musical family and, and uh, got to study with people from the Philadelphia Orchestra. Maybe just share some of your early uh, early memories in there. Sure. Yeah, I was born in Rochester. My father uh, was a graduate student at the U of R. Oh, okay. So uh, after that, he, he got some jobs. Um, in, uh, I think in Lexington, Massachusetts, Baltimore, Maryland, eventually sit settled in the Philadelphia area where he taught at Temple University. Huh. So I basically grew up there and I went to Cheltenham High School and maybe this would be a good time to to <laughs> mention some of my uh, some of the alumni from that school. Yes, I think this would be an excellent time. <laughs> some of our colleagues. Yes. Uh, tenor saxophonist Adam Kolker. Tenor saxophonist Andy Snitzer. Yes, um, indeed. Before Andy and I, we were about the same age. Before Andy and I, uh, Michael and Randy Brecker, Jeff Lorber, and um, and we can go outside the music world, and you've got some pretty good name drops there that too was a as well. Mellifluous <laughs> movement to a new area. Uh, baseball Hall of Famer Reggie Jackson, and Benjamin Netanyahu. Anytime you can drop a foreign diplomat in there, you're gonna have, you're gonna you're gonna go one step above pretty much any other uh, graduating class. Yeah, so it was quite a place. <laughs> but uh, and what was it like? Uh, were you studying with members of the orchestra at that point, or? Uh, yeah, I, I picked up the bass, you know, in late elementary school, and I started studying with a guy named Sam Gordetzer who played in the Philadelphia Orchestra and later with uh, Michael Shahan, also of the orchestra, and after that, uh, a guy named Luke Cosma, who played with the Met here in New York, oh. um, who retired recently, and I think now he conducts a lot. Oh. Mm. So that was my start, and then I, I was accepted at the Eastman School of Music, and I have a bachelor's degree in applied <laughs> double bass. <laughs> and how, how, how was the experience for you? I mean, I know, like, looking back on it now, there's I see more of the positives than I did probably when I was there. But uh, but uh, certainly from uh, from my perspective, the, the, the ensemble thing was always really great. How about what was your experience uh, being there? S similar. I mean, I thought it was a great school. I mean, it, it 
was then, maybe more than now, was set up as a conservatory. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no jazz program for undergraduates. Right. So I played in the orchestras and I studied privately with uh, James Vandemark, who still teaches there. And yeah, the orchestras were good, and uh, theory and harmony class, and uh, some liberal arts classes too. Uh, all, all in all, I think I got a very good education, and certainly continue to work with people that I met when I was in school, and I remember Freshman Orientation Day back in 19... <coughs> <laughs> there was a guy who spoke to us. I mean, I think there were only maybe a hundred of us, right? Or right, a pretty right. small school. And he said to us, look around the room. These are your future contacts in the music business. Mm. Yeah. And I remember that to this day, and and of course, it was true. Yeah. And there are guys that I went to school with that I still work with, like yourself, right, and right. others. And and uh, you know, it was a good little piece of advice. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I, I found uh, you know it, it is great to see all the the undergraduate jazz programs developing and and that being an option. But I thought, uh, like you mentioned, that at, at Eastman at that time they didn't have an undergraduate jazz program, and I actually thought that was somewhat advantageous because it forced us, you know, similarly, you know, we I'm not going to be playing in the New York Philharmonic, but if I happen to be on a recording session with somebody like that, and I know I've seen you on hundreds of recording sessions where you're, you know, arco bass, and you know, you're having to deal with that side of it, even though that's not where you lived most of the time, but because of that education, I think it. Uh, was was good to to n not have the undergraduate jazz and be able forced into like approaching it that way. I agree, and I've always felt that classical playing really helped my jazz playing, mm -hmm. but vice versa, not really. Mm -hmm. The jazz playing doesn't really enforce any of the information that you need technically. Mm -hmm. To play classical music, I mean, it's nice that I can hear the chord sequences where the you know, second violinist may not know what they're doing. They may know their note and not realize that they're playing the 13th of the chord. So I had that. But, I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, the, I think it was good. And when we were undergraduates, you could participate in the jazz program, play in the Eastman Jazz Ensemble and take classes. We just couldn't get the degree. Right. right. So, yeah, I think that was okay. Yeah. Let's... Um Let's jump into Woody's band. I remember when I remember vividly when you left to go on the band, and uh, it was a big deal. I mean, that was like, wow, thank God, thank God to gig with Woody's band. And then I think you went first, and then Rat Ratatouk followed on you. But it was short. Shortly, uh, the, yes. that was the rhythm. The rhythm section from the Eastman Jazz Ensemble was now Woody Herman Thundering Herd rhythm section. But uh, what was that like? That uh, working with Woody and that in that time you spent on the band. It was great. Woody was a great guy. Who he loved young musicians, um, and he actually I think it was John Otto went first, mm, mm -hmm. um, and John Otto was stolen from Woody by Rosemary Clooney a few years <laughs> later. But John went first, then I went, and then Dave Ratacek, and uh, it was very funny. I think it was Ratacek's first night on the band, and we played uh, Four Brothers. And the saxophone players were way behind the beat, and the trumpet <laughs> players were way ahead of the beat. It's like, <laughs> and Radicek looked at me like, what the hell is <laughs> And Woody went over to him and he said, 16 men can be wrong, you're right. <laughs> wow. Which I think made the whole difference, like, it made Dave be confident and say, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to rope them in, and yeah. I'm going to find that, for whatever happened, things, for whatever reason, things had dissolved into, like, mm. you know, whatever it was, phrase-wise. And I thought to myself, well, Woody's a great guy for doing that. He saw that Dave needed the confidence, mm -hmm. and he gave it to him the first night, which yeah. was terrific. Um, wow, those old-school leaders, like, they knew how to, like, get it done with just, like, one kind of... Little statement like that that gives you gave, gave Dave probably so much. Uh, yeah, especially well, on a first night. You know? Yes, and sometimes I mean Woody was. I mean he could he could be really sarcastic. I remember there was a great trumpet player who will remain nameless, <laughs> who went out and played 
his entire solo double time right from Jump Street, you know, just <laughs> and it was a good solo. And afterwards, Woody said, "That amazing display of technique <laughs> was by." <laughs> I just lost it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was great. He was a strong leader, a good guy. And the band was good. Good swinging band. Um, I remember hearing the band a couple times uh, with you on it, and it was particularly strong at that time. With, yeah. Uh, you know, John Fedchuk was on, and uh, in the sax section was great, and, and rhythm section with you and Dave was spectacular. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I wasn't that crazy about the bus tour for a year. That was, um, in fact, when I finally quit to move to New York, Woody asked me why I was leaving, and I said, "Well, Woody, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not like fond of it, you know, traveling on a bus. Try it for fifty years." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's funny. Well, you mentioned New York, and that's kind of what I guess got you off Woody's band was the the idea of coming to New York and, and uh, maybe just share some of your uh, your thoughts about uh, what it was like when you got here and uh, and and what you were feeling at the time and some, maybe some of the uh, early gigs that helped uh, get you established. Um, New York, in this was about 1980, it was a different city mm -hmm. for sure. Um, it was much now it feels kind of like shopping mall <laughs> to me, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, in the 80s, it was kind of, you know, Village Voice was a kind of a hip newspaper. Right. New York was a hipper town. I, I, I mean, I see the same thing in London. Now I go to London, I see, you know, The Gap and, you know, United right. Colors and, uh, you know, Navy, uh, whatever it's called. <laughs> um and it's sort of like lost some of its character. And New York, I mean, it was crummy in some neighborhoods that are now revitalized and nicer. Um, but I, what I found was that there were a lot of different kinds of musical opportunities. And I got started playing with people that I knew, many of them from Eastman. I called them when I arrived. Mm -hmm. One of them was Jim Pugh, mm -hmm. who had been on Woody Herman's band and gone to Eastman before me, but I just called him, cold called him, said I'm here, and, you know, if anything comes up, um, I think I had met Marvin Stam when mm -hmm. I was in school. He had come up for a clinic. I called Marvin and a handful of other people. And, uh, you know, eventually you get recommended for stuff. And I, I played some weddings and bar mitzvahs. And uh, eventually I did a Broadway show. Got me in on that scene a little bit. I was recommended here and there for jingles or recordings. And uh, it wasn't a super fast process, but I was willing to, to wait it out. Mm -hmm. You know, if you move anywhere, show up with enough money to sit tight for several months. Yeah, indeed. Um, nobody comes to any town and takes over. It yeah. just doesn't happen. It's funny you mentioned, Jim, because I remember hearing you, uh, maybe Sue Evans playing drums, and <laughs> with was Jim's quartet, Jim Pugh, and, and it was a, a club called Possible 20s. Yes. Which is, uh, it feels like those kind of places aren't there here anymore. I mean, Possible 20s isn't, of course. Yeah. But, uh, but those kind of like... Uh, very like distinctive. They had their own flavor to them, you know. So those, uh, it, I kind of miss those those uh, those places and those in those times, really. Absolutely. And I remember at Possible Twenty, you know, I come in there and start setting up, and I see like Grady Tate was sitting at the bar, like, you know. Somebody said to me, "Look at Grady, he's swinging even at the bar. He's just <laughs> sitting there and he's swinging." <laughs> He was a great guy. I don't know if you knew Grady, but he no, was I didn't oh, know. a wonderful guy. Um, but, yeah, there was a scene, and musicians came in all the time, and I think that might have been the first time I played with Randy Brecker. He sat in with Marvin, and uh, Ronnie Cuber sat in. These people that I had <laughs> on records. Um, so, yeah, you know, eventually you, you network and uh, start to work. So, yeah, one thing led to another, and then, as I mentioned before, my friend John Otto was with Rosemary Clooney. So when she would come to New York, he would call me to do her work, called Ratacek to play drums. Uh, later, a guy named Joe Cacuzzo played drums. Um, and Scott Hamilton and Warren Vachet, I think, mm. were the two horn players. Wow. So, yeah, it just kind of 
it grows. As long as you behave professionally, <laughs> show up on time, wearing the right clothes, and can play, there's no reason for somebody not to hire you. Right. Right? I mean, if you can play, you're not a jerk, and you're punctual, you're not, you know, you're not a liability. Certainly, if you play at your level and, and you play the bass, that's something that... Uh, Every band's going to have a bass, and, and a quality bass player at your level is uh, is premium for sure. I was going to just say uh, to our viewers who might be thinking, like, what is possible 20? What does that mean? <laughs> and uh, back in the day, uh, they, they would book a jingle, and you would typically book it for one hour. And if they wanted to have the possibility of going overtime, they would say, and possible 20. So it'd be, it's booked for an hour with a possible 20. So whoever it was, I don't know who owned the club, but somebody, I, I guess they were in the jingle industry. But Some they, musicians. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. So they uh, called it Possible 20. I said that was kind of funny. Um, you know, we've talked, David, so many times when we've hung out and uh, had a chance to work together about all the people that you've played with. We could do, it would take a whole day to go through everybody. But I just want to throw out some names and just, you know, just you get your reaction. And, okay. and, and, and I just came up with some, some folks that I thought would be interesting. Let's start with um, the great Brazilian singer, uh, Yvonne Linz, which uh, he's one of my favorite musicians of all time. But I know you worked with him uh, quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, Yvonne Lins, uh for those of you who don't know, is a Brazilian composer um, who now actually lives, he lived in Rio, now he lives in Lisbon, or somewhere in Portugal. Oh, okay. And I had actually run into him in, in the village here, and he told me he moved. I said, why'd you move? He said, David, Rio is the most beautiful city in the world from a helicopter. <laughs> but... Uh-oh. Okay. It got pretty rough there, uh -huh. and um, he just felt like he was working in Europe a lot, and they speak Portuguese, obviously, in Portugal. So, I mean, Portugal's beautiful. I don't know if you've been Yeah, there. absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so he moved there. But, yeah, Ivan, um, I'm trying to remember how I met him. Oh, I know, his, his uh, saxophone player, a guy named Zeno Guerra, called me to do a record with Yvonne, and so I went to Rio and, and did this album, and uh, that happened a couple of times. Mm. Um, he's fantastic musician, ah. great songwriter, and very emotional player, singer, writer, and he's written some pretty famous songs recorded by big Brazilian artists. Great guy. Oh, awesome. Um, Dizzy Gillespie, that's amazing that uh, you have that on your resume, but like... Uh, the Godfather of Bebop, but what was that like? Great. He, um, I did a couple of tours of Europe actually with a very interesting combination. It was Dizzy, Paquito de Rivera, and Miriam Makiba. And um, we did some things all together, as it was a gigantic band, obviously. Um, and then Diz called a couple of times to do a, a concert here and there. And I mean, yeah, for me, this is a guy who invented the language that we use, um, and he was funny. And I remember the first gig we did; he couldn't remember my name, so he he introduced everybody in the band. It was like uh, it was Danilo Perez on piano, Ignacio Barroa on drums, and he said, and on bass from uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, John Smith. <laughs> And the guys were dying. <laughs> <laughs> but he did once tell me that he liked the way I played. So I said, okay, could you write that <laughs> down? Can I quote you on that? Yeah. yeah. So but he was wonderful, you know, an important musician. Yeah. Oh, my no gosh. No question. Uh, ridiculously so. Um, this is a gentleman that, sadly, we lost a few years ago. And, uh, and, you know, you and I have both worked for him. But you worked for him quite a bit. But the legendary producer, Phil Ramone. Phil Ramone. Um, I feel very fortunate that he called me as much as he did. Um, he was someone who really liked musicians. Mm -hmm. He he did. He liked hanging out with us, and he liked being able to g employ us. Um, and, of course, he's associated with a lot of hit records. And... Um, through Phil, I I was able to record with a lot of different people: Gladys Knight, Sinead O'Connor, uh, Natalie Cole. It was a long list of 
of big stars. Um, really, really a great guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, maybe I'm sure you feel this way too. I remember I remember when he passed, uh, just thinking like, wow, this is going to put uh, a dent in uh, how much work we do, and it certainly has. I mean, it's, it's not easy to replace uh, somebody like that. You know? Not easy, and it, it did put a dent because mm -hmm. a lot of the work that he did some of it, I think, went to L.A. and some went to other producers. But he also, he generated stuff. He was fearless. He could call up, uh, you know, Gladys Knight, it's time for you to do a standard record. <laughs> and she, he had that voice. Yeah, right. And she okay, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think, this, I think Phil produced this else, but also ask you about uh, your work with George Michael. I know you did some tours with him as well as, well as quite yes. a bit of recording. Yes. Actually, I met George through Phil. Phil hired me to play on a record uh, called Songs of the Last Century. It was done in 99 mm -hmm. in anticipation of the uh, turn of the century. And um, it was a, basically, it was a standards record that included um, the Sting song, Roxanne. Oh, wow. Um, on which, on the date, I started playing some Phil's toward the end. And I guess George really liked it, kept it <laughs> on the track. Um, and I even slipped in a little quote there, if you listen carefully. Not everybody catches it, <clears throat> but it stuck. And um, a few years later, George was going to tour, and he decided he wanted to include some of that material, along with some of his Wham mm -hmm. hits. So uh, he called me to do the tour, um, and it was just in Europe with a symphony. It was called a Symphonica. Mm. Uh, he brought some of us from New York. Some of us, some of the guys were from his London or his UK band, and then he had an orchestra uh, that traveled with mm. us too. It was, it was big. I mean, you've done big tours mm -hmm. with big pop stars, I know. So. For me, I'd never played in a stadium mm -hmm. in front of <laughs> twenty thousand people, screaming fans. It was, it was wild. We had any. I guess you guys um, with the stones you used in ear. We used uh, for in the horn section. We used wedges, but everybody else had in ears. Yeah. So we had these in ear monitors, and we could get it mixed just the way we like it. And if I took one of those off during the concert, all I heard was <laughs> <laughs> screaming. Yeah. I mean, it was unbelievable. But George was a terrific singer, um, a very talented guy, and a gentleman. Mm. And um, we had really had a good time. Didn't spend that much time with him because he generally, when the concert was over, he generally got on on a private plane and flew back to London. Mm. He stayed okay. home. So wanted to be home. Yeah. I mean, why not? Everything's within a couple of hours. You know, when you're in Europe. I think he stayed with us when we were in Paris. But um, so it wasn't like. You'd run into him in the hotel lobby or anything mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. I want to ask you one more uh, before we... Uh, I, I want to spend a good deal of time on Andre Previn, but before we do, um, one of my favorite arrangers, I consider him one of the best musicians in New York, but uh, the great Rob Mounsey. I know that you work a lot with him. I, I, I consider myself blessed to have worked with him as much as I have and love every opportunity I get to play for him. But um, your, your feelings on Rob... I can't say enough about Rob Mounsey. Guy is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, in many genres, also, if he writes a swing chart, it swings. <laughs> if he's written something for Steely Dan, it's dead on right. Um, he's he is really spectacular. Um, I think the first recording I did with him was Sinead O'Connor for Phil Ramone. And um, there are some arrangements on there that I really love. He's a great orchestrator. He has great sense of um, what's what's the sense of phrase in music overall, mm -hmm. whether it's instrumental or accompanying a vocalist. Um, yeah, I've worked done a lot of things with him. One of my favorites was a record we did with Natalie Cole. Um, it was really mm. fun, mm -hmm. and she was really fun, and she was she was a good singer and a good musician who knew what she wanted, which made Rob's job super easy. She'd count off the tunes, 
where she wanted them. She'd say, drummer. Uh, the drummer was Chris Parker. Uh, brushes and t until the fridge, then go to sticks. Oh, wow. Yeah. Rob was like, you know, I'll just sit here and let this thing <laughs> roll down the hill. It's great. Um, but he is he's really great. I, I've hired him a couple of times um, also for uh, recordings that I produced, a couple of records for Tom Wopat. Uh, we always used Rob on, yeah. on some things. The best. And, uh, the best. Like you just said, I mean, I, I've never been around somebody who could, if you heard his swing chart, you would think, well, that's what he does. But then the next day he writes something that sounds like Aaron Copeland. And then the next day it's something like Stevie Wonder. And it's like it, it, everything he touches is just yes. right on the yes. money. And it could be string writing. It could be big band writing, woodwind writing, or, you know, just a rhythm section track. And it's always great. Yeah. Always. Absolutely. Okay. I, you had, I'm going to, I'm going to prompt you for a couple stories that you've told me over the years, but um, it, your the resume continues. But Andre Previn, I mean, one of the, uh, I mean, what, one of the great American musicians, I suppose, right? You know, and, and uh, I can remember being a kid and uh, watching uh, Previn in the Pittsburgh, the show he would have on PBS. Yeah. And, uh, he would have everybody from Oscar Peterson to classical music stars, what it might be. But um, just talk about your experience working with Andre uh, over the years. Yeah, one of the great musicians ever. Kind of an unstumpable musician. I, I know I'm, I may have told you this. I went. To, I was going to go hear him conduct uh, the Philharmonic in Lincoln Center, and we met for dinner. He sat down to dinner, and he looked at me, and he said, Hey, man, you ever hear of this guy, Stevie Ray Vaughan? I said, What? I said, You're going to go conduct Wagner? What do you know about Stevie Ray? Said, no, my son turned me on to him. He said, it's really good, right? I said, yes. <laughs> I was like, Wow. I really, you just didn't expect that. Somebody like Kurt Mazur would not have known who Stevie no. Ray Vaughan was. <laughs> and Andre was, you know, he was another one. He was somebody... He, First, he really liked songs. He knew a lot of tunes, and we recorded tons of standards. He was a great orchestrator mm -hmm. and composer and, and conductor and accompanist. One of my favorite records he did with a singer named Doris Day, just the two of them, beautiful. He had great bands, great trios, and uh, he was the music supervisor, I think, at MGM when he was like 19. So... Heavy. I'd tell the story about when you uh, you guys went to hear Oscar Peterson. Uh, oh, play, and you, you guys were out on a tour, I guess. Or well, it wasn't me. He he had his tour. He had a trio with Red Mitchell and Shelly Mann. Excellent. Oh, trio. wow. Okay. And he told me they went. They were in Chicago, had a night off, and Oscar was playing with his trio at one of the clubs. So he said, "Come on, guys, we'll go check out Oscar." He said they sat together. Said Oscar. <laughs> I guess he had Ray Brown and Ed, Ed, Ed Thigpen. And Andre said, they play the first tune. He said, I turned to the trio and I said, should I just fire all of us? <laughs> <laughs> he said, it was so burning. He said, what are we doing? <laughs> I remember the, him sitting down and playing on the Previn of the Pittsburgh. This is in the 70s. But... Uh, um, and it, it's amazing. I mean, of course, who can who can sit there and play with Oscar Peterson? But he could hang in there. You know, I mean, not that many people could hang in there with Oscar Peterson. Absolutely. But, and here's this guy who's conducting the Pittsburgh Symphony at the time, and and, and now he's going to sit down and play play that. It's just it's incredible. Yes, it's he he could hang pretty. I mean, he had those kind of fingers for yeah. sure. Um, and he he worked a lot with Ray Brown also. So uh, I guess he stole him from Oscar once in a while. <laughs> um, but Andre was he was a superb musician, but with all the Academy Awards and Grammys and whatever else he won and all the accolades and he the German Medal of Honor and Kennedy Center honors, I always remember one experience with him. Um, we used to play Tanglewood almost every summer. And I went up early to see him conduct. And the first piece he played, and I can never remember, I know that it was a Ray Fawn Williams piece. Mm. And afterwards, I went up and I said, I said, man, that Fawn Williams is really gorgeous. And he said, you know something? He said, that first chord, he said, I could drop my baton and hold that chord for an hour. <laughs> he said, just the way he voiced it, the orchestration of it. 
And in that moment, I realized that's what dr- drove Andre Previn. That's mm. what he loved. Actually, the sound of music. Uh-huh. And, you know, along, you know, all the other stuff is great. You know, traveling around and conducting Berlin. But that's what he really dug. Mm. And yeah. I thought that was pretty special. And yeah. I, I saw him react. I, I turned him on to this uh, song, this Christmas song, called Christmas Love Song by Johnny Mandel and Marilyn and Alan Bergman. And I brought the music over, and he started playing through it. And he was like, oh, my God. Oh, man. Man. <laughs> man. I said, Andre, take it. Take it. Just really? I, he was so turned on by the chord sequence and the melody and the words kind of special people don't react to music that way all that much anymore yeah you know it's amazing to me like uh you probably feel the same way but uh, somebody like that who you think oh they might be motivated by the stardom and and the accolades and like you're saying but he clearly wasn't even if he hadn't have had all that stuff he probably would have been so uh, moved and committed and dedicated to a life in music and and it's always interesting to me seeing stars who are you know you can see they're more they might be good really good musicians but they're more motivated by stardom than they are the music itself. Yes. And you can tell when there's somebody like that yeah. who's, who's it's the music that's really uh um, Oh yeah. He inspires he, them. Absolutely. I mean, we went to we played a duo concert in London and we went into some kind of a record shop somewhere, and he was going through these records. You should hear this. You got to hear this. And they were. It was some of it was jazz. Some of it was like you know Bernstein conducting Mahler. You know, there's a long uh, compilation. Get this. Get. And it was it was really special. Yeah. He also. We also went into a men's store. He needed to buy a shirt for the concert, and he was looking through these shirts and beautiful like silk shirts and. One of them was kind of like bright red, um, pinkish, and he pulled it out, and the uh, salesman came over to him and said, it's a bit vivid for you, isn't it, maestro? <laughs> <laughs> I almost lost it right then. He turned to me and says, you're not going to hear that shit in New York, right? <laughs> you don't oh, have to believe great. shit, do you? No. No. We're good. No. <laughs> yeah, it's right. Whenever you run across people like that, which is not that often, but so inspiring, and oh. it makes you want to, you know, bring your game up to another level. Absolutely. Let's uh, let's shift gears and talk about uh, this your your latest CD, which I'm honored to be a, uh, a small part of, uh, entitled "Basic Instinct." Um, I should uh, say right away. Sharon Stone is not associated with this <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. And it's basic B A S S. Right. A very little clever. Twist on that. Yeah, huh? I, very clever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is your fourth uh, CD, uh, fourth solo project, which I, I think is fantastic, especially for uh, for bass players to to be stepping out and doing um, work as a solo artist. Tell us about this one. This one. Um, much like my previous one, which is called Basically Jazz, also B-A-S-S. Ah, huh? I see the pattern it, here. It? Now I get it. Um, essentially, it is music that I like the way I like to hear it. It isn't necessarily uh, overly bass-focused. It's not me playing the melody on everything or me playing all the solos. Um, hence, Basically Jazz, mm-hmm. and they have some pop songs couple of singers, um, and with Basic Instinct, I kind of continued that idea. Um, and so, yeah, and uh, much of this was recorded during COVID, so there was a lot of um, emailing of tracks around the world that included uh, a guitar player in Rio, the drummer in Santa Barbara, California, a trumpet player uh, from... Uh, the UK. Do you know Ryan Quigley? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's strong. Great. Really, yeah. he was on George Michael's tour. That's how I knew oh, him. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's really powerful player. Yeah, and a good guy. It's hard, it's hard to understand with that accent. He's from Scotland yeah. originally. Oh, the Scots. Uh, yeah, I'm just <laughs> hanging on one word that I can build the thing around. And see, if, okay, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I got you. <laughs> Those guys. It's very funny. There's a trombone player named Nicole Thompson. Do you know Nicole? Okay. So, when we were on George Michael's tour, there was one point where I would go down in the front and play, you know, a medley of the Wham hits, like 
and then come back. And every time I came back to my place in the orchestra, there would be a note on my music stand. <laughs> nice try, asshole. <laughs> Just go back to New York. <laughs> oh, every night though, it was something different. And it was him. It was Ryan and Nickel. Oh God, it's hilarious. Uh, and I loved it. Not not only is it um, uh, uh, standards, but also you've you've got uh, originals. Is this the one? Yeah, theme from Mannix, which I think is one of the uh, my favorite. TV. Talk about music that was great back then. Oh. Like so many good TV things. Back yeah, Lalo Schifrin wrote that. Yeah, but. Uh, I just I, I really enjoy this record a lot, and uh, was boy talk about getting the thrill to plan it. We got the session that was right in the middle of COVID, and I remember seeing you we were of course all masked up, and uh, boy it was like a breath of fresh air just being in the studio and getting to play music again, and uh, it, was, it, it was amazing. But uh, yeah, it was a, it was a different kind of process for me. I guess I'm old school. I generally I call a bunch of guys, we go into a room and record, but since that wasn't possible. Um, you know, you have to write and or arrange things so that, you know, it'll be uh, not as problematic, but less problematic than mm -hmm. it could be. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your work as a producer, which I find, uh, you know, you've been kind enough to hire me a few times. And, and uh, you've got a great um, um, instinct about you and, and also temperament, the way you handle things. So important, I think, as a producer to... Uh, you know, you're trying to motivate the musicians to get the most you can out of them. You know, and and also you have to have, uh, you have to have the chops to to know what's going on musically. To to you know, there's you you're really juggling a lot of things. But I was just kind of curious, like what made you get into it, and and how how do you enjoy that work, and all, all those kinds of things. I got into it because I used to go crazy in the studio watching people waste hours <laughs> and money and energy because as you know when you, you record something a song 14 times the the uh it's it doesn't get better between four and 14 mm -hmm. usually right. it gets worse um i remember on i did one of these records uh rod stewart sings standards and we played one song for about eight hours. Yeah. And at, at a certain point, and I made a lot of money on that one song because <laughs> we finished it like four in the morning on a Sunday, oh, whatever right. it yeah. was. Right. But I was like, no amount of money. <laughs> it doesn't matter. And it was just, um, it was really aggravating. And I, I realized, you know, as a musician myself, musicians want to come in, they want to feel good, they want to play well and walk away after three takes or two takes and a couple little fixes and go, next. Um, and it keeps everybody energized and it makes for better music. Certainly, you know, there are times when something requires a lot of takes and that happens. It's funny, uh, speaking of Andre Previn, he told me he conducted some Sibelius with Pittsburgh and they recorded it. He said the first movement's like 20 minutes long. He said they played the hell out of it. It was a good orchestra up Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. He said they played the hell out of it. He said the producer said, that was good. Uh, let's do one more. And Andre said, why? <laughs> well, you know, just like it was a backup to have it. And he said he walked into the control room and said, listen, they just played the shit out of this thing. Yeah. So you don't need another take. And he said, besides... People are going to buy this record because I'm conducting, and that's a great orchestra, not because you produced it. <laughs> wow. But true. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he knew. You're going to play it again. You're going to start hearing more mistakes. It's great the way it is. So, I, you know, I learned from various situations over the years, and I've always been someone who likes songs. Mm. So uh, some singers hire me to produce their stuff. Um, because uh, I feel like, as someone who likes songs, I I understand keeping that balance between words and music, mm -hmm. which is not an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you work with Frank Sinatra, who probably the best, you know, certainly in the top five, you know. Um, so, just kind of, I started doing it. 
I, I just to, to compliment you a bit, and uh, the times that I've worked for you, and even on the on the on the Basic Instinct uh, project, um, what you just said, I think, is so important. Like as a musician, you know, generally your first take, maybe, maybe not. If it's a jazz record, then you know, more likely it could be that. But like you said, it's not going to get better between four and fourteen. And I think knowing when, okay, we have it now, because it's very easy to get diminishing returns, and then you're trying to recapture what you had already had, and it's frustrating as a musician, which you know. And uh, but you were great. I know when we recorded a couple of the tunes for Basic Instinct, I, I was like, ah, I want to get that again, and you were like, I think it's fine. Let's listen back. And it was I'm like, okay, yeah, you're right. It's okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's that's like a, a that's a, a that's a skill that uh, is a lot of a lot of producers don't really possess, but it's important, super important. One thing that I learned that was. It was really a great lesson. I did a recording, I think, for the New York Voices with an engineer named Elliot Shiner. Oh, of course. Elliot, yeah, is, he's, like, yeah. he's like to engineering what Rob Mounsey is to arranging. Right. Fantastic. And it was a bass solo. So I said, you know, he let me do, I don't know, three passes or four passes. And I said, okay, well, you know, you got it between those four. He said, no, you come in here right now and you tell me what you want. Mm. And I'm not going to go through an editing nightmare, <laughs> editing your solo together. It's not. He said, "Not my solo. It's yours." And I said, "You know what? He's right. He's right. I can choose what's going to work, and then have it be done. Otherwise, you know, he's going to edit it and send it to me, and I'm going. Well, you know what? I like the fourth bar, <laughs> the second chorus. Right. Um, and that's also part of working cost effectively in the studio. And um, that's. That's important. And, of course, the cost-effective quality comes from good casting. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, indeed. if I call you and Snitzer and Ryan Quigley, I know it's going to be good. These three guys that are great players, accurate players, they're going to play a jazz solo. It's going to be great. They may not be thrilled with every note of every bar, <laughs> but who is? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, I found, you know, a lot of music today... I guess people are so accustomed to you know, digital uh, editing and snapping everything to the grid. And sometimes it really sounds sterile to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, Snitzer actually told me, he said, don't nuke this stuff because it's easy to do. <laughs> yeah. To tune this and move move that here. And he said, it's got, it breathes, it's human. Yeah. You know, don't turn it into a machine. He says, anybody can make get a machine to play. He said, this is, uh, so, yeah, he was actually, he was very helpful with that. Yeah, that's, that's uh, really uh, good advice. And I know even times when I've mixed the stuff, uh, of my stuff, like, it's very easy to get into, like, looking at the grid. Oh, it's not completely together. But then if you if you start mixing like this, then you're going to get, and you're going to reach, again, reach diminishing returns. I did a big band record with somebody who did that. Everything was right in line on the computer screen. And it sounded so sterile mm. mm -hmm. because the sound of a trumpet section hitting a note, there's a splat in there. I mean, that's the beauty of it. Yeah, same absolutely. with strings. You got 15 string players. Every violin's a little different. They bow a little differently, different sound, different pitch, a little out of tune, a little sharp, a little flat. And you put it all together, you got human beings there, yeah, you know? Absolutely. Um, as, as we kind of wind down a little bit... Uh, you know, there's been so many, we talked about it uh, quite a bit already, but there's so much change in the music uh, industry, uh, certainly from when we started. I mean, it's, a, it's like a completely different business. Um, where do you see, I, I mean, I certainly see it, um, uh, you know, through, we were talking about my son Cole, who's also a bass player, young, uh, getting getting started right now. You're just trying to understand, trying to see a path, you know, for where things are going, but uh from your vantage point, like where do you see, where do you see things progressing for specifically for young musicians like uh, that are coming up now and say, man, I'd like to do the work that David Fink did, and uh, it's not going to be the same. It's not going to be those people, but but how do you? Is what's your thoughts? I guess is what I'm asking. It's a big question, but it, it is. You know, I watched the business. I mean, every generation. Of guys, oh yeah, the business has changed, and it does change. 
Um, it evolves. Um, sometimes it unravels and it doesn't really evolve. And I think one of the things about music now has to do with, of course, with technology. Now, when you call yourself a musician, it can be you at a computer mm -hmm. producing music. And the requirements are different. We had to learn in school, you're going to play this Wagner, you have to phrase it this way with this kind of sound, and, you know, bow it this way. And there were, there were, there was a lot of history. And now the history is really recent. So, um, and technology moves so fast, I'm, I'm not equipped to do it the way, the way the kids do it today. <laughs> I mean, it you know, guys now come up, they know how to run Pro Tools. They know how to tune with Melodyne and other tuning applications. Um, they know how to get things up on YouTube and on Spotify. And that's part of it. And it's even part of college curriculum now, mm -hmm. how to get yourself out there. Mm -hmm. However, I feel like, for the most part, things like songwriting has declined. And I'm not saying that everybody has to be uh, Rogers and Hart, <laughs> but the art and craft of keeping words and music in balance and the relationship between certain pitches and vowel sounds and consonant sounds, all those kinds of things. Um, you know, I heard something on the radio where I, I, the guy sang the word sympathy, and he said sympathy because it had to rhyme with me. Mm. You and me, sympathy. And I thought, that's really not English. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, right. and I'm not saying you got to be Johnny Mercer, but Johnny would, you know, that'd yeah. be a big no. Yeah. That's, in, in a way, it's lazy. Uh, I used to work at, and produced a couple records for the singer Christy Barron, and she'd look at a song and she'd go, that's lazy writing. Mm. There's no reason to put an accent on the wrong word. Find another, make another phrase. And I think that that's part of the decline. It's accepted. Um, and hip-hop and rap, as one friend of mine says, um, let me preface it by saying, it feels good. <laughs> right, right. It does. Right. And, but as one friend of mine says, if you could sing, sing. Don't, don't yell at me. I don't want to turn on the radio and be yelled at. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's something to it. Some some of them can sing, it's no question. But and and this is not you know black white Asian. It's right. nothing to do with that. It's the style of it, and almost all of it. Not all a hundred percent. Most of it is in four four. M most of the the language is not um, really. Um, it's it's not required that you have a deep understanding of rhyme scheme <laughs> and the, the relationship to the music. There's relationship to the beat, which is cool, but I think there's a, that a lot has been lost. I mean, as far as melodic content or right. harmonic content, considering all the, of the advancements handed to us by everybody from Ravel to Dizzy Gillespie to Herbie Hancock, you know, don't you want to include some of that language? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's important. Um, so I feel like that's, it's kind of stagnant in that way. I mean, hip-hop has a history. I used to like it a lot more when it first came out in the late 70s, early 80s, and so you know, the Sugar Hill Gang and Grandmaster Flash, you know, some of these, these uh, Crown Heights affair, the rap was fun mm -hmm. and funny. Mm -hmm. It wasn't all about, you know, what a badass I am and I got this many chicks and, you know. <laughs> okay, I mean, I understand it's a reflection of an attitude or a lifestyle or whatever, but, you know, I think that a lot has been lost. And... um you know, now I look at pop music from the 70s and 80s, and I go, wow, Earth, Wind, and Fire. That's <laughs> human, great, absolutely great wow. songs. Yeah. And some of the lyrics in those 
don't make a whole lot of sense on paper, but we forgive a lot because it feels so good. Yeah. And the melodies are great and the changes are great. It's same with, you know, Carol King tunes and James Taylor tunes, Stevie Wonder tunes. I mean, it's special. And again, I don't want to sound like the old guys dismissing what's going on today, but I do think there's a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the future is going to be. So, it's all uh, I, that, those are really thoughtful uh, words from you, and I, and I think it's almost like you're putting out a, a challenge to young writers to to include, you know, uh, and and to look back and and include this history and in, in, in terms of vocabulary and. I don't have the the knowledge or the or the attention to detail in terms of lyric like you do, um, but yeah, when you put it like that, I mean, it really makes a lot of sense. And I hope that you know the pendulum will shift, you know, to some degree back in that direction at some point. You know. Yeah, and I don't even know if it's taught in school. Mm-hmm. Like, I haven't taken a songwriting class, but sometimes I wonder, like, when you look at a song like a Jerome Kern. Oscar Hammerstein song like All the Things You Are. If you really listen to it, the way the poetry is married to the melody and the chords, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of craft there, mm-hmm. a lot of skill. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if it's recognized, even by s- plenty of people who sing that song, to really understand what's involved. I mean, my favorite, some of my favorite songwriting teams besides the old guys <laughs> from the great american songbook you know some marilyn allen bergman with you know, michelle legrand or Yvonne leans and i know the bergmans and and they are very conscious of every vowel sound and the and the the the, the note that it attaches to it's not just hey, i got some words that run <laughs> yeah that's a, that's really interesting. I to, I'm woefully uh, uh, unaware of a lot of that because as an instrumentalist, you, you know, you kind of. But you're right. Then you talk about talk about some of the singers that you've worked with, but working with uh, songwriters like that who have that level of craft and uh, artistry. Yeah, boy, it's it's some, something to consider more yeah. more seriously. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I want to ask you. Uh, you've always been great uh, on your when you're producing to. Uh, file stuff through the union. And I know that this is kind of like a, uh, you know, it's a lot of people don't want to hear, but I think, I think this is important. Um, you know, as we face the labor situation, this is, I'm, I know I'm doing a sharp left turn here, no, but, go uh, ahead. but uh, um, I think it is important and we're seeing, you know, the, the decline of unions, uh, not just in the music world, but, uh, but all, all, all unions. Uh, and you're really great about it. You always, even if it's, Low budget scales or whatever you're paying, paying, running things through the union, which is I think uh, admirable and uh, and we and, and appreciated from a musician standpoint. Where do you see the future of of specifically the musicians union? And I know, fortunately, with our pension, uh, was in some serious trouble, but now it's looking more promising because yes. of uh, uh, what's done being done with the current administration. But what's your feelings about the future of the Musicians Union? Well, I think that the Musicians Union has a lot of problems. The first problem is that you don't have to be a musician to join. Mm -hmm. Um, Find me another union that has has that going on. There may be one or two, but I don't think so. And, And so that alone allowed people to rape the system. Mm-hmm. Guy can write a jingle, put his niece Janet, who's seven years old, on the contract, <laughs> and she gets a little annuity from the jingles that uh, her uncle wrote. Um, that always troubled me, and I know the union is trying to get generate enough income to keep the doors open, so... Okay, yeah, you play tamb- tambourine. Okay, cool. <laughs> we'll take your money. Um and that's a, that's a big problem. And the second problem, and maybe it's not the second problem, maybe it's the first problem, um, is us, is the musicians themselves. Um, because they, we have allowed a lot 
to go bad for us. Mm-hmm. Um, there were generations of musicians before us who made a lot of sacrifices, negotiated residual payments, uh, performance rights. I mean, guys did that for themselves in the future. And now it feels like anybody will just take a gig. Okay, yeah, I can, I'll do it for 75 bucks, even though the scale is 150. And so you end up like the bar keeps dropping. Um, and it troubles me. And I feel like, hey, we all deserve a pension. We all deserve a health plan, just like the guy that drove my kid's school bus. Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was set up. But I think we kind of did ourselves in. And we had the opportunity, for example, when when CDs came out, they're easy to copy and they sound pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, when you're driving your car and you pop that in the machine, it sounds good. And this is even before file sharing. And nobody said, hey, you know what? Let's put a little tariff on blank CDs so that musicians mm-hmm. generate mm-hmm. something. I mean, I don't know the details of it for greater minds than mine, but I think we kind of just went, oh, okay, fine, you know. And now, my own kids have never paid for music. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a frightening reality, you know. And, yeah. Uh, and the expectation is that they want it for free. Exactly. You know? and, and, and they're getting it for free. And they so. are. And yeah. I've been to a couple of negotiations with the record record uh, contract negotiations, you know, and there's the guys from the union on the other side of management guys with a $1,000 an hour lawyer mm-hmm. who was not stupid <laughs> at all. No. And, you know, they pulled up a graph and it showed, you know, record company, distributor, middleman, blah, 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 blah. And literally the musicians were the smallest amount, the smallest percentage of, uh, you know, generated income from recorded music. And it should be the opposite. We're the ones making this stuff. Yeah. But somehow it's unraveled into this. So I think the future of of the union is going to have to be about, it may involve something, you know, drastic. I, I don't know. I think it's a shame that you don't have to be a musician to join the union. Mm-hmm. And I think that could change. And if it means it becomes more of a guild or some kind of smaller organization, then at least having that union card means something. means you can play. You might right. play badly, <laughs> right? but you could play yeah. something. And I think, too, like, you know, the uh, the importance of the union, I mean, you, you mentioned it, like uh, people playing for less than the... If, if there was no union, it would be... A complete free for all, and the, the scales that we enjoy, and we of course we wish they were more, but you know scales for a Broadway show would be uh, a fraction of that if it was left without without union. Um, and the other, yeah, I just wanted to add this as we get ready to face uh, an election here coming up uh, next month for for local 802 here in New York. I've always thought it was weird that we never got professional labor people to represent us. And I, I know musicians go back and forth on this. And it, it is, of course, important to have the musician's perspective. And I get that. But when it comes time to actually negotiate things, we can explain to a professional uh, labor person or attorney or whoever it might be what what we need from the musician perspective. But they know how to negotiate. They know how to do, you know, they're the uh, you know, the, the producers are represented by, like you said, very bright individuals who make a lot of money, but they're earning that money. It feels like feels like from a leadership standpoint, we should be having um, professional labor people in that in that world but that's just i mean that's a that's a long just we got to do a whole interview on that <laughs> yeah on that topic but uh, I, I i agree with you um and and like you said they'd have to be trained to understand i mean some of the issues for what we deal with in the recording studio it's hard to explain to a civilian right i've had to explain it to people a guy puts an arrangement in front of me with slash marks representing uh, well, mostly musicians watching this will know there'll be a chord sequence with slash marks saying, play your own bass line, which is good because I'm going to make up a better bass line than the arranger usually. Right. So it's his Cuban feel. So I'll play a bass line. 
Now, the guy playing violin on that track, he doesn't have to create anything. He's got these nine notes to play in the first four bars. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a different skill. So should I be entitled to more money because I'm doing something extra? I mean, this kind of stuff happens all the time. Yeah. Mike, play a 16-bar solo. Okay, well, now you're composing something on a guy's record. You know, we all do it. We play a solo, but nobody says, hey, here's another, you know, few bucks for you. I remember I did a record with Phil Woods, and he told me that, you know, that solo he played on Just the Way You Are, which is a great solo. It's oh, amazing. Yeah. Another Phil Ramone call. Uh. He said, I mean, that thing is played on every wedding where that tune is played. It's written. You can buy it along with the sheet music solo. Phil got scale or double scale, whatever he got. He should have gotten like another hundred grand for that. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's yeah, part heard, of the song. I had heard that as, as well that he didn't get any. Uh, uh, he wasn't hooked up in terms of uh, some sort of royalty or something. And and uh, it, yeah, something like that. That's so a part of the fabric of the song. It's much more than exactly. a part. So explaining this stuff to attorneys isn't easy. Um, I, it's I'll keep it brief, but I was called in to testify on behalf of somebody in the pit of a Broadway show. Oh, wow. Because okay. he got fired. Okay. And I tried to explain to the lawyer who was going to represent him what it feels like to be playing a song and have a conductor conduct a lot faster <laughs> than you're actually going. Yeah. What that feels like. And it feels like somebody pushing you. And so, what do you do? They say, watch me. Watch me. You can watch them, but you don't play with them. You interpret what you're seeing, and you keep it, especially if you're a drummer or a bass player. Yeah. You know what it's supposed to be. If you actually follow the guy's baton, you'd be on the next tune already. Yeah. <laughs> um, those, those kinds of things, you know, my position was... This this player shouldn't be fired. And getting the lawyer to understand, you know, happy yeah. birthday <laughs> to what that feels like. Yeah. It's yeah. hard. Yeah. It's really hard. So I think we ideally it would be a musician who gave up the trumpet and became an attorney yeah. who could really help, you know, massage that stuff in there. But generally speaking, you're right. You sit down at a table with a guy who you know makes all that money? Who the management hires this lawyer for Broadway for record? It's the same guy. Yeah, because he's really good at it. Who's gonna win? Yeah, I mean it's just like it's like buying a car. You think you're gonna get a good deal on your Tesla? This guy sells ten of them a day, and you buy one every ten years. Who's better at the negotiation? <laughs> You're not going to win. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a problem. I kind of wish um, I wish the union could be stronger, um, but it, it's really tricky. Again, I, the more I talk about it, the more I think it's the musicians. I mean, there were musicians that were running for executive board last time that took a non-union job at Carnegie Hall. Yeah. I was like, okay. You want to do a non-union, uh, you know, demo for your friend or a birthday party? Fine. Carnegie Hall, where everybody else is in a union. Yeah, that's that's sure. not okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Well, we'll we'll hope for the best. And, yes, and, absolutely. You know, try to make our. And you certainly do. You stand by your words and and uh, do the do things the right way. Um, just to close out on a very positive note. Uh, what uh, what's ahead for David Fink in terms of uh, you mentioned you had a new project in the works and uh, you're much, always working on something. I so. much prefer the negativity, but if you want to go positive for a minute, I I am uh, in the middle of a, an, another project, uh, untitled, but I'll tell you I'm considering and don't anybody steal this playing to his base. Oh, oh, nice. Okay. And I am not a right-wing Republican, so no. don't, you know, don't worry. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thinking about it anyway. Um, and that's uh, actually, you're, I think you're on a couple of the tracks we did already. And it's 
More to come. Nice. More low-budget well, recording I'm, scale I'm, for uh, you, Mike. I don't want to tip my <laughs> negotiating hand, but I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be similar. Some, some singers, some originals, um, um, some uh, bossa novas, this and, you know, it'll, it'll be a mix. Music the way I like it. I figure I better make my statement before I leave the concert. As Ron <laughs> Carter says, he left the concert. <laughs> Well, uh, just a reminder to everybody to check out Basic Instinct, uh, available in wherever you download your music at, and uh, Apple and whatever it might be, but uh, and physical CDs. I love physical CDs, yes. so uh, I prefer it, that. But If uh, you don't mind downloading it about 9 million times, <laughs> then I can pay my <laughs> cell phone bill. <laughs> but, uh, David, really a pleasure to, to uh, talk to you about your career and also your thoughts about... Uh, about the business and uh, songwriting, and just uh, really, in, in really enjoyed the interview today. Thanks, Thank you. Thanks so much, David. Thanks for it. having me. Uh, we will see everybody next time on Bone to Pick. Mm -hmm.